0: Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to our COLA Conversations, both live and online on our podcast. This is a chance for us to connect with the wider community and to imagine a future together at a time where our venue remains closed. These events are completely free, but to turn to tonight's discussion, a fair share, our topic, Economic Inequality, this year, inequalities that were already severe have been quite exacerbated from this preschool meal scandal, proposed austerity policies to workers unionizing globally. We ask, how can we rebuild a fairer society? Taking this issue on this evening, we have two panelists. First of all, we've got Mark Thomas, award-winning writer, performer and provocateur, and Dr. Wanda Viporska, Executive Director of the Equality Trust. Um, I'm actually gonna hand over to them to give a little bit more of a introduction of themselves and what they do. Um, if we could start with you, Mark, is that all right?
1: That's absolutely fine. <laughs> hello, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us. And uh, I've had a quick look through the gallery and uh, a special hello to Dave and to Peter. Um, they're my chumps. <laughs> What do I do? I I, I I am a writer. I am a performer, and um, I I I'm particularly interested in in well class. Class is the thing that's become most obsessive for me uh, because it has just absolutely defined where we are and where we're going, and what opportunities and chances people have in life. Um, and I think one of the things that, uh, the, the, the reasons or the con- things that connect me to it, uh, other than just personal experience, is, is uh, over the past uh, few years, I've in particular done shows about class. Uh, and I was thinking in particular of um, The Red Shed, which is uh, stories uh, of uh, the minor strike and how, it, how those sort of memories still permeate today. Um, at the moment, I've been doing um, a lot of work, which are podcasts, which are with the Welcome Collection, which was, into. I, I should say, for the past five months, well, for the first five months of the pandemic, I spent with my mum, who's an 85-year-old um She's an 85 year old woman who is just the rudest woman you can ever meet in your life. And um, she's absolutely remarkable. Uh, and I was carer for her. And in the evenings, I'd phone up NHS workers and care workers and talk to them about their days and what had been going on for them. Um, that work has now extended where I've been working with um, various trade unions and talking to key workers, we've been collecting testimony from people. And so the basic, um, the basic kind of premise of what I'm gonna be talking about tonight is on those conversations that I've had with workers over the past year and their views, and hopefully I'll try and represent it uh, in a way
0: that's accurate. Great, and handing over to Vonda.
2: Hi, good evening. Um, and I'm gonna say hello to my mom because I haven't seen her since December 2019. so The only way we get to see each other is when I do events and she tunes in. So um, hi, Mum. I hope I do you proud tonight. Um, I'm executive director of the Equality Trust. And as many of you will know, we were founded by um, Bill Kerry and professors Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson when they wrote the groundbreaking book, The Spirit Level. And so we're very much working in the field of economic inequality But one of the things I really want to stress about that is that we cannot just look at economic inequality by itself. We have to look at the way that it intertwines with race, with gender, with disability, with all of those issues, with geography. We hear a lot of talk about inequality now, people talking about inequality, but we don't hear people talking about the impact of inequality in a sense. So although it's obviously morally wrong that CEOs are being paid hundreds of times more than nurses and 300 times more than care workers, it's not just about that. It's about the fact that in countries with high levels of inequality, like the UK and the US, we are the post-children for inequality, we also see higher levels of poor physical and mental health. We see higher levels of drug and alcohol addiction. We see higher levels of teenage pregnancy, of obesity. We see higher levels of violent crime and incarceration. And we see lower levels of educational attainment And importantly, trust. And I would suggest that, you know, trust is really important in a democracy. Although, you know, with the introduction of of ID to vote, I'm questioning really whether we're in a democracy at all at the moment. So it's really important to bring all of those things together. And we see them come together in the labour market. We see gender pay gaps, ethnicity pay gaps. And COVID has really laid bare what we already knew. That, this, that COVID was not something that affected Black and Asian people because of our genes. you know, As we all knew at the time, this is about deprivation because when you're living at a low income, you're more likely to have comorbidities, health issues. We know there are lower life expectancy. If you're a man born in Belgravia, then you are likely to have around 33 more years of healthy life expectancy than a man born in Blackpool. And we've just seen in The Guardian today the research from Bristol University that shows that children, 23% of child deaths were avoidable in the most deprived areas if the mortality rate was the same as in the more, in the more affluent areas. So 700 avoidable child deaths here. Now we're in the fifth or sixth richest economy in the world. We should be asking ourselves why we are seeing people dying because of inequality. And
0: that is how serious. So to start the panel discussion, um, I'll start with the first question, quite a big broad one, which is that the economy has obviously been at the forefront of the conversation throughout this year and the pandemic. But what has the real world impact of the last year been on economic inequality and, as you just said, other inequalities? What has got worse? What, what has got better, if anything? Um, I appreciate that's very broad, so feel free to zone in or whatever, either of you. Fancy, Mark, can I start with you?
1: Yeah, I think that, well, certainly wanted to just outline brilliantly the, 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 the structure of, of, or part of the structures of inequality and what comes to bear when we have those discussions about inequality. And I think what we can say is that during COVID, those, uh, the fault lines of inequality have been exposed even more, um, by which I think the, you can look at the way in which risk has been attributed and distributed Um, risk is something that you can see within those who stay at home and those who go to work and those who stay at home are predominantly people who can um, who've got white collar jobs who have got uh, proper internet access who've got computer access who've got actually a job and an employer that can say right you can do all your stuff from home we can sort you out um and those who go to work are the people who kept the economy going who kept the country going it's not just the economy you know this idea that the economy is naturally you know what would you measure the economy by people talk about the economy in terms of gdp or gross domestic value and all that kind of stuff actually that's nothing it's just measurements of interaction between economic activity it's not actually about us it's not actually about what's our worth are you to argue that actually if you wanted to you could argue that a car crash was economic activity you know when you look at the amount of economics that were created from that car crash you know because you've got the ambulance the police you have actually got the fire service you've got all the people who are involved in it so you've got the away truck you've got the insurance company you've got the mechanics you've got the people who make all the parts to get the car back on the road if you're lucky there's a fatality so you've actually got sort of people dragging people off to hospital you've got doctors medics, all the equipment all of that, all of this is economic activity. You might even bring in an undertaker and flowers and florists and cards and services and all. all of this is economic activity, but no one would say, thank God there's another car crash, the economy's looking up. You know, quite clearly economic activity is an inefficient measure of, um, of, of judging what's good for us. But I think what's absolutely I- incredible in all of this is that those who have gone to work Um, We've seen the bearing of risk on those who've had to go to work. So traveling on public transport, traveling uh, in in, in ways uh, that, that are not properly safe, not actually um remunerated for the travel uh people who have um been put into situations where there is no possible social distancing of or lack of social distancing and you can see it really really clearly if you walk into a supermarket if you go into waitrose you know you will get the most vicious stares dare you step anywhere near your two meter exclusion zone Um, uh, you know i'm not saying it's you know Tantamount to the sinking of the Belgrano in the stair, but you know it—it it, it is. It you will get if you inc- if you go into that inclusion zone, you will get properly tutted at. Whereas oldie, no one cares because two reasons. One is actually there is um. Where's class? Class, and you can see it working through from the top down in the situation of what people care about. Do the work? Are the workers uh, in Aldi cared about by the by the people who employ them? And do they care about their customers that they will like, include and enforce all these social kind of measures? And quite clearly, they don't. And secondly, I think the thing is actually people shopping in Aldi are far more used to bearing risk all the time, and within that, we have obviously the added a factor that actually Black and Asian people are far more likely to actually contract COVID. So all these factors and the fact that those people are more likely to be working in low-paid jobs with uh, with more crowded housing and we know that the numbers of people uh, together, uh, density of population has an impact on, on COVID. So all of these things has shown us I think that, that actually that COVID has exacerbated the inequality and its and it's been seen most in the bearing of risk.
0: Amazing, yeah. Um, so you've obviously linked um, economic inequality to like public health and directly who's affected. Is there anything you'd like to add on there?
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, what I would like to see continue after this is a recognition of the value of what those people are doing, you know. Suddenly, you see people um, saying thank you to the dustman. You know, um, I, my son was was sort of, you know, applauded in a in a school assembly because they'd been on a school trip, and he always says thank you to the bus driver. You know, that was something really big. Now, I have to say, that's in London. When I'm up north, then everyone says thank you to the bus driver, but that's that's a whole different ballgame. But it's about valuing people's labour. You know, why do we value people? in caring, people, nursery staff, people who are carers, nurses, all of those sorts of professions, and they are professions, so badly, but we know why that is, because they are predominantly done by women, and they're predominantly done by people who are called low-skilled. Now, seriously, anyone who's ever done any caring will know that that is not low-skilled at all. You know, I defy any FTSE 100 CEO to go and spend time with someone who's got dementia and spend half an hour with them or an hour with them trying to sort you know trying to sort out things that need sorted out that is not we do not value those caring skills and we've also seen for women that they t- they've borne the brunt of furlough they've borne the brunt of redundancies they've borne the brunt of homeschooling and so th- you know it's really put back women in the workforce a lot as well so there are all these different factions and factors in what's happened during covid but mostly as Mark says, it has, been, it has been the brunt of it has fallen on the shoulders of those with the lowest incomes. You know, it's interesting when we started opening up after the first lockdown and who were the first person people you could have in? You could have in your cleaner and you could have in your nanny. <laughs> you couldn't have your mum to come and look after your kids, which is what most people were doing. But, you know, that just showed us how people
0: how people viewed the economy there are um, different demographics um, that are more affected by the last year and by their um, sort of economic status or socioeconomic status. Um, as the world reopens, as we terming it, who do you think has the potential to be left behind, I guess? Um, Mark, do, do you have an answer to that?
1: Well, I think there are lots of people. I, I, I'm not so sure that left behind is a great phrase, no. to be honest, um, stuck in poverty. Uh, enforced in poverty is probably uh, a better phrase because people are forced into poverty. That's the blunt reality of it. You're sanctioned. You are taking your money from you know. And, and, and what's incredible is in this. Uh, uh, and while I just while, while we're on this, the, in the debate about food, and Marcus Rashford, you know what you had here. And um, people saw the blunt reality of half a pepper being wrapped up in a plastic bag and presented to someone as a healthy food. And what you saw was was absolutely the demonization of the working class. And it has gone on for ages. And if you look at it in particular in food, You can see, you can go back to the 1840s, where the government of the day insisted that actually the workhouse only provide gruel because if they gave them proper food, it would encourage people to become work shy and they would want to go to the workhouse. To the extent on Christmas Day, when they got given roast beef, they were forbidden from serving it, uh, even if it was philanthropically given. They weren't allowed to give them the roast beef because that would spoil them. In India, during the famines, when we had the Great Hedge in India, which was a salt tax, there were famines in India, and the British Empire decided what we do is we get people to work for food, we get them to do public road works and things like that for food. And in Parliament, all the commissions and committees talked about, well, you can't give the poor Indians money because they'd only spend it on tobacco, I wouldn't feed their children, which are exactly the arguments that are coming out with, well, if you give them their food, they'll only go and swap it for drugs. These debates, these points of view and bigotry from the ruling class have not shifted one jot, And what we've seen is the entrenchment on that. And I have forgotten where we started and what the question was, but I'm quite (laughs) cross.
0: That was brilliant anyway. That's absolutely fine. Did you have anything to add on that specific point, Fonda?
2: Well, I've got to say, I was so carried away by listening to Mark that I forgot what the question was as well. You know what? That's fine. (laughs) fine. What I want to pick up on is the fact that, you know, as Mark says, going back into history, you know, I'm, I'm a historian, but we are basically going backwards. You know, all of the rights, all of the employment rights that we have fought for for over a century, we are losing. You know, when we're campaigning these days, we're not campaigning to progress. We're actually campaigning to hold the ground that we fought for over years. And I think what we're seeing with bits of the gig economy is a return to Victorian days with piecemeal, you know, peace rates where you got paid exactly for the thing you produced. You got no sick pay. You had no time off you know, you were producing as much as you could in order to make the bare minimum. And I think what one of the absolute tragic things in our society at the moment is, is that people are working for their poverty. They're being paid poverty wages, which means they still need to have a top-up from the state. They're going to food banks. You know, we have nurses and teachers and policemen going to food banks. You know, they are working. And these children that are poor, we have 4 million 4.3 million children in poverty, which is set to rise to 5 million. And this is because what's happening is that more of the profit is being squeezed and being put into shareholders and dividends, shareholding and dividends. And where can you squeeze profit from in a company? You squeeze mm-hmm. it from the labour. You squeeze it from the workers. And we have seen this increase over the decades until we've got to a stage where actually the state is subsidising the companies. Because they're not
0: paying the wages that people can live on. I would actually like to ask a question about how you both think that policy has impacted um, economic inequality um, in the last year or even beyond, and, and the role, I guess, of policy of, of the state versus um, company and market interest. Um, Vonda, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah, well, I mean,
2: you know, inequality is not inevitable, it is a choice. And so with every policy that the government nods through, they are making a choice as to whether they're going to increase inequality or they're going to decrease it. And one of the key problems is that there isn't, as I talked about before, inequality isn't just about income. It's not just about wealth. It's about the, uh, the impacts of inequality that we see in those social determinants that I mentioned that mean that people with, on lower incomes are more likely to be hit by these problems that we have in society. The violent crime, the mental health, or the poor health, etc. So, actually, if the government doesn't have an inequality reduction strategy across all departments to look at this in the round instead of tinkering around at the edges, then this is never going to change. So, when we look at p- policies like stamp duty, even when we look at things like student loans and student fees and all of these things, you can look at every single policy and think, is that going to increase or decrease inequality? And so every, cho- every policy is a political choice. And we hear about the government talking a lot about levelling up, even talking a lot about health inequalities, because it's, it's pretty hard to avoid that um, in light of COVID. But they, and they'll talk about poverty. They won't talk about inequality, because talking about poverty means you're just talking about people over there, and you know, it doesn't really affect you. But talking about inequality demands action on the top. And that is why we're not seeing political will, because it means they have to examine what's happening at the top. And the vested interests are just not interested in doing that. Turkeys don't vote for Christmas.
1: I think when you talk about policy and how it affects um, inequalities, I mean, you you can quite obviously see the effect of policy um, through Tufnell Street and the think tanks. Um, which emerged from Toffnall Street, which are incredibly right-wing, have been funded by incredible um, vested interest and right-wingers who we know, these are just the ones we know about, they're incredibly secretive about who funds them. But we know there's been enormous money coming in from ideologues from America and corporate um, uh, entities from America that have wanted to see uh, a deregulated state in Britain. And by deregulation, they don't act, it's not a libertarian, idea, actually, because libertarianism gives individuals some responsibility. What they do is they make the individuals responsible, more responsible to the state. That's the shift that we're seeing. We're seeing a paradigm shift that says, instead of the state being responsible to us and answerable to us, we are more and more answerable to the state, where actually the state and its alignment with money and capital can go offshore, can, you know everything can be done to make sure that they're pump-primed, but that actually we have to, if you look at, for example, um, the, the police bill, which actually not only, yeah, the Home Secretary here gets to decide which demonstrations are legal and which aren't a woman who is a proven bully who has broken ministerial codes gets to arbitrarily decide which demonstrations she will allow. We've got a situation now where actually a statue destroying a statue. There is a part in the police bill that actually has provisions for sentencing, which is about the cultural and emotional impact of a statue. So you could end up in prison for longer for damaging a statue than you could for damaging a real live woman. So, what we have, have seen is this incredible playing out of the culture war to alleviate uh the, the, the kind of focus on poverty. And when you talk about policy, Tufnell Street is the way in. That's where policy has come straight into politics. They put forward these reports, they go into parliament, they discuss them, they then bring out papers, they then suddenly it's been policy. And the BBC actually put them on and say, Yes, we've got a new report out. Isn't it marvelous? This wonderful report. And not one of them goes, hang on a minute, you won't if you won't tell us who's funding you we can't have you on because we don't know anything about you you're just you know this is this is just a bit of charlatanism it's smoke and mirrors so there is this direct link between policy and inequality if you wanted to look that way if you're looking now obviously i think what you can see very very clearly is how years and years of austerity which is a political decision has put us into this situation where the NHS was so perilous and in fact people have paid for this although you know the NHS has done brilliantly just holding things together you know I I, I spoke to because I, I I got I was speaking to someone who works as the head of the renal department in one of the major London hospitals and what they managed to do they were about If you're in intensive care, the focus was on um, respiratory illness rather than on organs. And actually, what we found out is that the COVID attacks the organs and they had no uh, dialysis machines that could properly cope with what was happening in ICU. The dialysis machines that work in ICU are very basic and they need topping up with a special fluid and they're about to run out of that fluid. We were 48 hours away from ICUs not being able to function to have people supported in hospital. there is a higher grade dialysis machine that you don't need this special liquid for, you can add a bit of this and that, and if it goes and creates the stuff itself to clean the blood. And actually they, what they did was they put an emergency plan into action, which they developed, put into action and ran within 48 hours. And that was to re-plumb the ICUs to be able to put these new machines in. So what the NHS did has been remarkable. And they, the thing that they have faced time and time again, has been these decade of austerity and underfunding. That's what they've been facing.
0: Thank you. Um, we've spoken a lot about, um, I guess, vast economic inequality. and So I almost hesitate to ask the question of, could either of you name anything that is actively being done, not necessarily by the government and by policymakers, to narrow the wealth gap? Yeah. Um, who wants to take that first, maybe? Mark, you get to take that first? If
1: that's all right, Wanda. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, trade unions. What is absolutely apparent is when you talk to people, um, who uh, workers who have worked throughout COVID, what is really, really interesting is the various stages and rights that people have and powers that they have, according to, and, and it completely corresponds with, how strongly organised they are as a workforce. Um, if you look at um, the RMT and the London Underground or the buses, what was re- what's really obvious, and I think particularly within the London Underground, was actually workers just said, "You know, we can't have congestions uh, at the gates. We're just going to open them," and they did. They just opened them, and it was a flow of information that was coming from health and safety reps to the management that was actually affecting change within the London Underground. Um, It was direct action by the bus drivers who were putting up cling film over their cab dividers, taping up cling film to keep themselves safe. Um, They were taping off those seats near the front of the drivers Uh, you know, to to, to actually give themselves space, that was social distance. And they were doing this before the government instructed the companies to actually, you know, to bring in social distancing properly. So what we saw was a very, very swift, we we saw quite swift action by workers to uh, provide safety, but it also is a way of of actually um, fighting to get wages, to improve conditions. Uh, We've seen recently um, a load of examples, whether it is cleaners, um, um, Larry Trait School in South London or in the Sage Nursing Home in North London, where health staff and care workers have not only organised and formed unions, they have gone on strike. And they've worked very, very quickly. They haven't been encumbered by the usual union rules and by the bureaucracy of it. They've been incredibly nimble and effective because you've got people who are working in healthcare homes who have got no sick pay. This is madness that you're working in basically, you know, a petri dish of COVID and you've got no sick pay. So what that means is if you're sick, right, you've got an economic interest in getting back to work as soon as you can, rather than actually recovering, which endangers everyone. So this whole this is a false economy uh, from the start. But what actually gives people real clout to change those conditions, to improve money, to decrease is, is, is unions in the actual organised labour, more importantly, organised labour.
0: Bonda, I, I read from your biography that you have experience with the trade union movement, um, so it's a nice transition, I guess, into what you can add there and anything that you can add additionally to the question of what is being done to narrow the wealth gap.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been in a trade union since I've been old enough to work. Um, I've worked at the TUC, I've worked in education unions, um, and I've, I've always been in a union. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the power of trade unions and importantly the power of collective bargaining because I think what we're seeing is unfortunately a decline in in the collective bargaining across a lot of sectors. When we look at the sectors that are most organised as Mark said you know it has been transport, it's been education, um, it's been those areas that have been really really strong as we've lost that manufacturing Industry and as we've lost those sort of big workplaces where people could gather together, find out their common interests. And I think the ways we see this is we see this in the ways that employers can pick off individual workers. Because if workers Mm. aren't talking to each other, and if there isn't someone there that can say, "Okay, this boss is a bully," because we've seen five or six other people that you know have had the same experience, then we lose that collective power and we lose that collective ability to challenge. And I think it's one of the most important things that we are able to. You know, to have that form of collective bargaining, because it's not enough to have fantastic work that the London Living w- that the Living Wage Foundation does. That's great. But actually, that's just a flaw. You know, we need to be aiming for much better than that. And if we have organised labour, as Mark says, and I'm, it's great to see you know, organisations like the Independent Workers of Great Britain who are taking mm. on those areas that a lot of the traditional unions were quite slow to get into. Um, But one of the things I have to say, and that always struck me, particularly as a woman with caring duties as well, was that I couldn't make it to the six o'clock in the evening weekly meeting, you know, where we were going to talk about committees and section 2.5 and, you know, paragraph five. Unions are really starting to reorganise the way that they organise, and I think they really have to. And one of the things I'm really proud about um, at the Equality Trust is that we are working with young people to look at their employment rights, to see, do they even know they have employment rights? You know, what, are they taught about these things? Do they know about these things? Because we have a whole generation of people that don't really know what unions are there for and don't aren't really interested in joining unions, unfortunately. So although we have seen a surge in union membership, which is great, you know, we need much more of that. We need to really start with our young people. And that's why we are, you know, working on a set of schools resources so that we can tell young people what their rights are so that at least they know. And they're not just let loose into the workforce in more danger of being exploited. So we've all got a part to play in this. You know, we can all talk to people about employment rights and and what people what people can do about it and encourage them to join unions. Because the one thing I remember, one of the many things I remember from my days in trade unions is that the reason that people joined trade unions was because somebody asked to. So we all have a part to play in that to make sure that we are organizing i've had conversations with people about trade unions in the gym changing room you know there is nowhere you can't have a conversation with somebody about joining a union.
0: very interesting point um actually to circle back to the title of our conversation which neither of you were responsible for um but it's called a fair share um and a fair oh. share if you look it up equates to a reasonable amount. Um, If someone asked you what a fair share would look like, would you have an answer for that? Um, What does that look like? What does a fair share look like across the whole of the UK, for example?
1: I think a fair share is something that you know what it doesn't look like. We're more likely to know what it doesn't look like. What it doesn't look like, as it has been discussed, is it doesn't look like people who live next door to Harrods and then people who live next door to Grenfell having, you know, this is in the same constituency, same borough, having a disparity of 22 years in life expectation. That's what it doesn't look like. Um, One of the things that I think it, it, it does look like is it, looks like the working class, the poor, having the same rights and enjoyment and access to things from holidays through to health, through to education that the rich have. I think that's one of the things it looks like. It looks like greater community that's what it looks like a fairer share looks more communal it means that far fewer preferably zero people go to private schools and that actually we're all invested in our schools working it looks like far fewer preferably zero private contractors working within the nhs so we're all invested in making the nhs Be relevant and properly funded and working for all of us. I think it's actually about uh, when people talk about council housing, they often talk about council housing being, you know, we need new council housing. Yes, we do. It's the great C word of politics, council flat. You know, we do need more council houses, but you know what? We don't need them built in blocks and shoved out to the edge of the city. We need to actually be requisitioning houses in Mayfair and turning it into a council house. You know, council house people need to be living next door to these, you know, I don't know, Mick Jagger, you know, or whoever. You know, because actually that's what equality looks like. If you want, you know, if you want equality, it's not about just building council houses, it's about integrated council. It's about integrated house. So we've all got to share in our communities and we're not developing our individual little gated enclaves which we retreat into. What's important in assessing what is fair is how effective a community is and what it has and holds it together.
0: Yeah? Yeah. Very much so. What a wonderful response to uh, my very broad question. Um, Fonda, how would you respond? I think that's absolutely right. And it is far
2: easier to say what it isn't than what it is. But what I would also say, and this is a word that we don't use enough, is it's about a dignified life. It's about dignity. It's about being able to flourish. It's about everybody, and I hate using this, everybody able to reach their potential because it is so overused. But that is about having good early years, a good early years start about having a good comprehensive education system where everybody gets a great education, not just picking out some kids and then, you know, and and private education as well. It's about health. It's about that life expectancy. It's about all of those things that we talked about at the beginning, not being piled on to those on low incomes and at the bottom. It's about not having to worry about having too much month left at the end of your money. It's about not having to worry if your kids have only got one set of school uniform and something happens to that, or if your fridge breaks down and you've got no money to to repair it. It's about not having to pay a premium because you're poor, paying more for your electricity, more for anything you want to buy because basically you can't get the credit and the insurance is higher. Mm -hmm. If there is a penalty for being poor, that's the ironic thing. So it is about first and foremost, being able to live a dignified life and being able to flourish. And that's why coming back to, you know, in this society, we value what we can measure. And so we look at GDP. Now, there is a whole movement, the wellbeing economy, about looking at what we really value, which is wellbeing, which is how we are as people, not how much GDP is being produced, whether it's from a car crash or anything else. And fundamentally, you know, one of those models that is really important in order to to be able to bring this to life is looking at cooperative models of work. You know, one of the absolutely crushing issues is that we are squeezing and squeezing and squeezing labor. We are increasing inequality in order to give more money to those fat cats at the top. And they're not putting it into the economy. You know, I won't, this is a recording, so I won't um, say where they're putting it, but I'm sure I can leave that to your imagination, but it's not coming back into our economy.
0: We have a very active um, audience here, lots of comments going on in the chat, very interesting points happening alongside yours. I would definitely encourage anyone who is uh, listening to both of our speakers to also look there. Um, As very engaged people in this conversation, um, I would like to ask, um, not to put responsibility on the individual, but what is one or multiple calls to action that you would give to people attending this talk who are interested in trying to, I, I guess, improve economic inequality. Um, Vonda, would you like to answer that first? Well, of course, I'm
2: duty bound to say, um, to check out the Equality Trust and our London group, if you're in London, um, and we have groups across the country and to get active and mobilized, whether it's having a conversation about this, whether it's encouraging people to join a trade union, we have a manifesto on our website that tells you individual actions that can be taken to reduce inequality, also local actions, so lobby your local councils, and the national actions that we need as well. So I guess my overall point is get mobilized and really think about what you can do because every action contributes to, to the work to reduce inequality. Uh,
1: well, there's no silver bullet. There's no one thing that's it. You know, if there was one thing, we would have found it and we would have done it. But the, it it's not called the struggle for nothing. It's called the struggle because it's a struggle and it's ongoing. That's how it happens. <laughs> You know, I remember talking to this amazing black activist in um, in Atlanta, who was on the march uh, for the Selma March, who was presenting the uh, demands to the governor. Um, And and I said to him, what advice would you give young activists uh, who are are working to alleviate poverty? And he said, uh, (laughs) he said, two words constant vigilance, and I couldn't, that is what it is, constant vigilance. This never stops. What we have is, you know, the great Milan Kundera quote, politics is the art of remembering over forgetting. It's important that we remember and that the act of remembering is is a political thing, that, When you look at, you know, people go, well, what's wrong with Boris Johnson getting nice wallpaper, we can say there's a whole list of tax dodgers who have helped sort of subsidise it. Um, There are a whole range of things that we need to do to um, attack inequality, Um, whether it's effective tax, we need to tax the rich. They cannot shirk their responsibility, they cannot expect free education for a workforce that they use, free roads, free infrastructure, free legal systems which are set up all around them, free police come and sort things out when things get a little bit lively because they forgot to pay somebody. They can't expect to ride roughshod over other people who have contributed and pay nothing. We have to tax the rich. We have to shut down tax havens. We actually have to have a culture which says we will. You know, if you're in a company now, you need to be actually celebrating what you do, rather than having some kind of pink wash every sort of pride or sort of putting some money up about how many how how little paper you're using now. You know, what you've got to do is actually create an environment that says we want a ratio of pay for the chief exec that is is linked to the people who work here. We need to have unions we need greater freedom for unions we need to get people into unions um we need to actually be fighting against the police bill which is taking away unions rights to organize our rights to to, to organize and to protest so the actual only form of effecting lobbying to a government now is lobbying you know if you want to actually change policy now your best bet you know in a cynical world is to start doing a crowdfund for 15 grand so you can whip up enough money to play tennis with boris johnson and ask him to do your favor you know what we want is a world where that ends and so I think it is it is a fundamental reappraisal of a a system which we now have it took ages it took ages to turn away that consensus of post-war atleism it took it's taken years and decades to turn that tanker around and it will probably take years and decades to do it again but that's our task And the watchword is constant vigilance.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in to listen to this Arcola Conversation. All episodes in our Arcola Conversation series are now available online.